Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today we have our returning guest, uh, who's been on the show a few times, John Robb, who's got a long history as a, a Intel guy and as a researcher and as a writer. Uh, John, where can we, uh, where can readers find your current writings, which are very interesting? Well, I'm on Twitter at John Robb, and um, I have a Patreon. I write a monthly report uh, called the Global Gorillas Report. It's been um, going since 2007. Yeah, and I'm a subscriber to it. I encourage people who want uh, to follow John to pay your five bucks a month or whatever the hell it is. I don't even remember. And uh, get his really good flow of information about what's going on. Oh, thanks. And, and I, I try to build frameworks that, uh, you know, help people make sense of rapidly evolving situations. It seems to work. Yeah, and you do this kind of whiteboard thing where you're kind of rough thinking. You make it available as well, which I find very interesting. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. I, and then we also have a Discord. and probably the, one of the few places you could actually discuss a lot of these topics in, in abstract uh, without uh, everyone calling each other names and, or nasty stuff. Indeed. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a good place to think through, through uh, a lot of this. Great. Uh, well, today we're going to talk about January 6th, the uh, insurrection, the semi-coup or whatever the fuck it was, and uh, you know, get John's thoughts on this. It's just the kind of thing John likes to think about and has written about already a fair amount, but let's get him here on live. Uh, you know, when I sit back and look at this and analyze it, it strikes me that, uh, you know, sort of why it went wild and turned into a successful breach of the Capitol rather than being just another demonstration slash shit show uh, was a combination of two things. Uh, one was an intel failure, as I've dug into it and talked to law enforcement people, et cetera. It's clear that either uh, something happened on the Intel side. One, uh, the data wasn't properly analyzed and the conclusion brought for, from it, or uh, there was such a data analysis and, and conclusion generated somewhere in the Intel stack, but then there was an alerting failure. That information wasn't gotten to the uh, sergeant at arms or chief of police at the Capitol or to the mayor, et cetera. And of course, the third alternative is that the alerts were given, but they were ignored for whatever reason. And there may be some evidence uh, that, that that could have been uh, the issue. Uh, and then there was an ops failure, uh, even within the context of, uh, say, a failure of the FBI to draw the uh, correct conclusions from um, you know, what was clearly floating around in the, in the uh, information sphere. Uh, the Even for a normal demonstration, there were a long list of ops failures, again, which I've been digging into with people and going to probably, uh, if I'm successful to book them, have a senior law enforcement come on person later in the week, talk about that. But let's talk first about intel failure. Uh, what's your thoughts on how could it have been that uh, clearly the mayor, the uh, chief of the Capitol Police, the sergeant of arms of the Senate and the House, uh, the chairman of the House Administration Committee, uh, none of them appear to have received, or if they did receive, acted upon intel about the nature of this event. It seems that they did get some warnings, and, and those warnings uh, are being talked about right now in the press, and, and they're bringing, them up, bringing up these warnings as a, a explanation for their for their uh, actions but um i don't think they fully understood what they meant um i mean i don't think the the intel folks who were doing the analysis really truly understood what they were what they were looking at i think the problem is is that there were it's a uh, a split between what was going on with this at the small group level and what could go on at the large group level at the, you want all these small groups to come together. Um, you know, people saw, and, and Intel people saw that the threat develop at the small group level, but that's handled within the context of, you know, uh, of standard security operations. 
what they didn't under, quite understand is that when you have all these little different groups uh, all plotting on their own with their own motivations for actually uh, uh, thinking about violence, uh, all coming together at the same time, uh, could they actually mobilize something large enough to, to you know, sweep aside the defenses of the Capitol? And based on previous experience, uh, I don't think anyone was really uh, of the opinion that this would actually happen. You know, based on previous experience with 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 right wing uh, protests, that they didn't think that there would be a you know a large uh, protest that would be violent enough to take over the Capitol and, and you know beat down the police to get there. Yeah, it's interesting you, uh, you note that. I've talked to folks, uh, you know, again, in law enforcement. Uh, they admit there was probably an implicit bias uh, in, in the thinking that, you know, a basically white, conservative, police-friendly crowd uh, is less likely to uh, resort to uh, extreme violence uh, against the police than are, you know, say, other, other groups. And so that's certainly uh, likely to have been part of it. But the other ones, one I think that's, that you alluded to indirectly, I'd love to dig in more into more detail, uh, which is uh, which I highlighted, which is a, a, a by Intel or Ops or some combination of the two, a failure to understand the real nature of a, a nationwide self-organizing network tribe. Right. Yeah. Um, if you if you listen to or read any description of the crowd that had assembled on that day. Uh, it's, you know, a classic description of, of a kind of an open source system, open source insurgency, open source protest. Um, and there are groups from every different, you know, nook and cranny of, of, of our political sphere. Um, and they all came together and they all had the same anger and same uh, desire, you know, to march on the Capitol and try to reverse this election. And, um, it, uh, it's, it's a hard thing for a lot of Intel folks to get their heads around. Um, I had a lot of success getting people to think, you know, in terms of open source terms, uh, back during the Iraqi insurgency and then and later during, uh, uh the hunt, uh, for, uh, ISIS and, and Al Qaeda. But, um, I think a lot of those, you know, skill sets have been lost in the interim. <laughs> so, uh, uh, it's, it's really hard for the, you know, the Intel folks and the, and the police and others to, to really understand how, you know, a lot of really, really small groups and individuals can come together and operate as a, as a, as a group. Um, yeah, the thing that really struck me about that was uh, the the information and the uh, signaling. A significant amount of it was in the clear. You know, it was on uh, the Donald. Uh, it was on Parler. It was uh, intermittently on Twitter and Facebook, um, and that even a fairly rudimentary. Um, you know, capture of messages and analysis ought to have showed that something was up, that there was a resonance, that these uh, messages were self-reinforcing. And if you followed the paths of them, uh, they were they were they should have been showing the signal of uh, you know, a hierarchy, not a hierarchy, but a loosely coupled set of small groups that were intercommunicating between the small groups and were resonating around a series of messages. How could we be spending, you know, whatever the number is, 50, 80 billion dollars a year uh, on Intel and not be able to detect what I believe I could have detected uh, with uh, 15 hours worth of programming. Oh, no, it was definitely there in the open. It was, uh, but, you know, you know, most of the people that were, were there, even during the riot, didn't think that they actually would take the capital. I mean, this is a complete surprise. If you look at the faces of the people when they got in to the capital, it was like, what the hell? <laughs> How did we do this? Uh, they didn't expect to actually achieve it. There were a you know, small handful of guys that were, you know, highly motivated. They anticipated getting in, uh, but even then, they didn't really have much of a plan. Um, I mean, it goes all the way back to you know why did why this whole thing started in the first place. I mean, I can understand you know Trump's motivation for uh, pushing in this direction. I mean, he was faced with you know legal cases and de-Trumpification. You know people coming after him and his only real protection was to, uh, you know, keep this thing going, keep the insurgency going and, uh, keep on, um, uh, you know, fighting against the system. And it allowed him to raise hundreds of millions of dollars that he could put into a pack. Uh, it allowed him to stay in the news, allowed him to, uh, 
get some protection in numbers against this kind of de-Trumpification pressure. Um, but, you know, it, you know, it came down to actually the day and uh, perhaps he was thinking that and, and everyone around him and everyone in, you know, who was, who was on the, on the same page uh, was thinking that they would love to have some noise outside the Capitol during the vote, that they wanted some, some kind of counter, you know, some protest out there, you know, putting kind of a, you know, a pressure on, on, on the senators voting. And, um, they never really anticipated actually having them come in. I mean, there's a small, small group of people, maybe. And then the operational failures ended up causing the whole thing to occur, where they actually did break in, contrary to expectations. I think one of the interesting takeaways of the whole concept of a self-organizing network tribe, because it's self-organizing and there isn't any strong coherence, uh, one has to assume that the subcomponents have a, a fair degree of heterogeneity to them, Right. Uh, you know, there was a, probably a vast majority of people who they're essentially LARPing revolution, as B.J. Campbell likes to call it, where they were there to make a grand gesture, then go home, right? But because of the heterogeneity of the sub-cells of the self-organizing cluster, right. uh, there were definitely people there who were prepared. I mean, they had uh, zip ties, they had uh, uh, you know, scaling ropes, they had, uh, you know, uh, crowbars. I mean, there was a percentage, and of course, in a percentage of a crowd that large, if the percentage is five, two or three or four percent who are actually prepared, uh, that's enough to catalyze action. And it seems to me when we're dealing with self-organizing network tribes, uh, a key lens to consider is that the components uh, of the tribe are likely to be heterogeneous with respect to uh, motivation, skill, uh, coherence within their cell, et cetera. And right. that's going to be something that we should uh, keep in mind as other self-organizing network tribes emerge. Of course, this is not the first. Uh, one, I, I like to think that in some sense, uh, Occupy, Occupy Wall Street was uh, the first of the modern network self-organizing tribes. And Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that was the essence of my book, you know, Brave New War. It goes all the way back to Iraq with the uh, – Open source warfare, open source insurgency, fighting the U.S. forces there, where you had 70 different groups, each with their own motivation, all coming together to fight the U.S. And then you had the protests, open source protests, where you know, I'm using different language, but that was back then. Um, the open source protests, which started in, in Egypt, and we had Occupy later, and, and, and we had uh, we had the Tea Party to a certain extent very, very, very early on. Um, and, you know, even those protests, you know, came up into the, uh, just a couple of years ago, I mean, where, where they took out the, the, the mayor of Puerto Rico and, and, and the like, and now we see it, um, in U S politics as a feature of U S politics where, I mean, Trump's support is kind of an open source political system. And there are lots of little groups, everybody who has, any kind of uh, grudge against the system, any you know disaffection with the system, any dissent against what the uh, the, the mainstream consensus is is drawn to Trump. I mean, he is the lightning rod for it, and he, you know, my my take is that Trump was put into office to keep things disrupted, and as long as he kept things disrupted, you know, prevented the cons in the, these kind of uh, mainstream consensus from operating as usual, operating business as usual, um, he was supported. And uh, so, you know, this is what kind of an open source insurgency looks like when it, when it, when it hits the political spectrum. Yep, indeed. And, uh, you know, again, a real takeaway here is let's, you know, people should just assume that these self-organizing network tribes are going to be a feature uh, of our uh, political system. I mean, obviously, uh, Black Lives Matters protests uh, this summer had a you know, very similar signature. Uh, you know, it had a number of self-organizing cells, uh, and they were quite heterogeneous. You know, you had people who were dedicated to absolute peace, and you had other cells who were uh, dedicated to absolute violence, right? And and if you make the mistake of thinking the behavior is the mean. Uh, of the whole tribe, uh, you're going to have a, you know, a, a classic Intel failure such as happened on January 6th. Yeah. I, I tend to uh, draw, you know, kind of a line of distinction between the kind of these self-organizing open source, you know, protests 
and you know uh, something you know that I would term a tribe. I mean, the big problem, kind of a central problem with open source frameworks, is that they're they have an impermanence. In, um, they tend to dissolve once they achieve their objective. And um, one thing I saw with uh, you know a lot of the tribes on, or what I call now the tribes on the left, is that they figured out a way to keep this open source framework intact over time um, to keep it uh, cohesive. And they did it through pattern matching and creating a pattern of, of, of behaviors and, and words and other things that they oppose. And that oppositional pattern was uh, what allowed them to, you know, form a, a, a tribe that persisted over time. So, um, you know, what we're seeing on the right Though, and, I, and this is one of my reports just from last month, was that uh, it didn't have the same kind of you know oppositional pattern that the that we saw on the left in the last year. Um, you know, the anti-racist, the anti-fascist, the you know, etc. Uh, on the right, what ended up becoming the pattern that it was opposing was this pattern of conspiracy. Yeah, and also anti-Marxist, right? The uh, yeah. argument. And this goes to my, you know, come an intro. I'm going to skip over uh, a question about the infosphere to come back to, uh, but I, I do believe that they they are developing uh, a signature organizing resonance, and 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 that gets to why go to insurrection? Uh, you know, we've had contested elections before. Uh, you know, Kennedy Nixon, right? There's in the historical records a lot of evidence that. The Dems stole that election in Illinois and Texas, which was enough to have tipped the Electoral College. You know, Bush-Gore, the people can end, argue endlessly about that one. And yet neither side even came close to going to insurrection. Uh, what, you know, what is it in the air uh, that led the uh, self-organizing uh, network tribe of uh, Trumpists to, to feel like the need to go to insurrection? Uh, what gave them the cohesion? Yeah, sure. It was the conspiracy. Yeah, I mean, the, the conspiracy framework uh, had always kind of been out there. It was in the, you know, really firmly established in the Q sphere, and um, Trump mainstreamed it with the election conspiracy. And um, we got incredible amounts of effort trying to show, you know, do the statistical analysis and, and, and do the uh, trying to dig up information on this or that. Uh, problem with the election system. And, you know, granted, it was a fertile system to look for flaws because it, you know, it, it is a highly flawed system. It's just the way, you know, the way it's developed is 50, 50 different systems uh, kind of cobbled together. There's different requirements for the vote voting and there's different, you know, the records are, are pretty poor on the whole, uh, particularly since they don't do a lot of the signature checking and the, there isn't a valid ID that's required in a lot of places. So, he was able to build this idea that the election was stolen uh, and that there was, you know, a group that had conspired to do that. Um, and that served as a glue to put these groups, the spirit groups together and that they were coming together to end that conspiracy, to put an end to it. And it, it's not a, it wasn't a huge group. And we're not talking like armies of hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, there was a couple thousand really, truly core supporters who were intent on ending this. Yeah, on the other hand, I will say that, you know, I know lots of Trump voters. I live in a place where the, in our, my electoral, uh, electoral precincts, at least 75% of the people voted for Trump. Uh, and I'd say half or so of the Trump voters um, continue to believe this uh, conspiracy election stolen thing, or at least they did up till uh, January 6th. So yes, there's the point of the spear, but there's a long shaft behind that point of the sphere in terms of people who were uh, sucked into this uh, in infosphere of conspiracy. But I would also add, and conspiracy is a big motivator, but also uh, this heightened sense that it's now or never. You know, this is the, uh, if we don't stop it now, we'll have Maoists, uh, you know, uh, running our country that, uh, it, it was is why you know when I was getting at when I said why insurrection now elections have probably been stolen in the past and say including uh, Kennedy Nixon and arguably Bush Gore and neither time did that lead to uh, you know insurrection so con you know the conspiracy theories one piece but then why is it worth fighting there's some 
sense that if you don't fight and if you lose, uh, something really dire is about to happen. I think that's in the air as well. Yeah, I think that I think that uh, fight now for, was a fork of this kind of conspiracy glue. So you had this conspiracy glue that you know this pattern that, that brought everyone together, brought you know half the Republican Party, maybe seventy percent of the Republican Party, into believing that the election was stolen. But uh, Trump forked it, and by saying it has to end now, this is the last moment. And it was part of that. Maybe the whole pitch for for money. Uh, it was part of his, you know, trying to you know get the support up, get the coverage, get the you know retweets, all that other stuff that he needs. He thought he not needed to defend himself against kind of de-Trumpification. That you know all the legal cases that are being mounted against him, all the efforts to you know to to go after him, his family, everybody who's supported him in the past or in his administration. Um, and that, um, that immediacy led to this, this fork that ended up causing all the problems. Um, it, it, it reminds me of the kind of the, the fork that occurred in, in Iraq, uh, when Al Qaeda in Iraq, you know, went after the golden mosque and it forked the insurgency, decided they wanted to uh, move it into a, full-scale religious war with the Shia um, rather than just focusing on, on fighting U.S. and Iraqi uh, military forces. And when they did blow up the Golden Mosque, that solidified the opposition in the Shia and then these massive militias came in and uh, did ethnic cleansing throughout Baghdad and put the Sunni insurgency in, into a horrible situation. They were fighting these massive uh, militias, you know, of that were cleaning out every single neighborhood and killing people with alacrity. And then if they ever tried to put enough people together to fight them, that they were getting slammed by the um, U.S. military or the Iraqi military. Um, and so it ended up causing the, you know, the kind of a peace deal that we ended up seeing, the kind of a, uh, allowed, which allowed us to you know, draw, it all, draw down the whole insurgency. So that fork destroyed the Iraqi insurgency. So, it, it, you know, is this the same thing that in practice, is it, did it fork in a way that caused the whole thing to collapse? Yeah. And of course, there's uh, conspiracy theories that say, yeah, this was all intentionally set up by the left to cause the, uh, the right to collapse. And it might have happened. But I would point out that this uh, sense of dire uh, direness about politics goes back. Uh, it's not just uh, now. Uh, you may well remember the uh, highly circulated article from 2016 that referred to uh, the 2016 election as the Flight 93 election. Uh, uh, you know, Flight 93 being the uh, uh, 9/11 hijacked airplane that was uh, where the passengers revolted against the hijackers and crashed the plane in Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, and the, again, the argument as far back as 2016 is we have to, you know, rush the cockpit and elect uh, Trump, uh, or we will lose our democracy. So, you know, extreme ideas like this have been in the infosphere for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a sense of a growing sense of dread that we're headed in towards a dictatorship of sort, sort of an authoritarian system. Yeah, both sides seem to believe it. You know, the left personifying Trump as a Hitler wannabe from the beginning. Right. Uh, and the right has been, uh, uh, you know, at least parts of the extreme right have been, uh, you know, profiling amazingly, you know, a mild, very slightly left of center guy like Joe Biden as, you know, the second coming of Mao. So it's uh, well, that's a, that's a byproduct of the tribalization process. I mean, when you start to tribalize, you have selective empathy and you give complete empathy to your, comrades and, and people who are, you have this like fictive kinship with and you give no empathy to anyone else who's outside of that. And then, you know, all those people out there are enemies. They're not just, you know, people you disagree with. They are people who are afforded nothing. And you, you could even see it, you know, in the coverage of, you know, of the death of that uh, one woman in, in the, um, in the, in the Capitol when she got shot by the Capitol police. And, you know, no one, no one really wants to address it. They didn't even treat her as a, as a human being. Yeah, it's an inter interesting signal. Uh, you know, in these tribes, uh, they, they self-organize uh, seemingly around almost disjoint information spheres. Uh, you know, for instance, one of the things I would, you know, scratch my head about uh, with respect to the, uh, you know, January 6th crew 
is how did they become so sure that the election was stolen uh, despite a lot of objective evidence that points the other way? Now, not conclusive, because as you point out, our system of election is noisy and murky, et cetera. But, you know, some of the ones that come to my mind, you know, there was a Georgia hand recount under Republican supervision, uh, which showed, yes, there was a small amount of noise, but the uh, uh, the results were 95% confirmed, wasn't even close. Uh, you know, 60 plus judges, many of them Trump appointees, many of them Republicans, many of them, uh, you know, panels of judges with Republican majorities uh, rejected, uh, you know, all the court cases, every single one. Uh, was that actually because of the evidence or was it because of they just circling the wagons on maintaining the trust in the system? Hard to say. But, you know, again, if there, were, if there really had been stinky shit. Uh, I suspect at least one judge would have raised his hand and say, oh, yeah. Stop. So again, again, I'm not saying these are conclusive, but I'm saying these are strong signals. And the third one, yeah, the, pro- the third one, I think that's the strongest of all uh, in some sense is that uh, eight Trump appointed U.S. attorneys um, at the direction of uh, Bill Barr investigated uh, the, uh, the election uh, and what happened. And of course, they have access to the FBI to do this uh, and concluded, which Barr uh, pulled together in a report and reported uh, that yes, while there is noise, there was absolutely no sign of a uh, of large scale voter fraud nor any conspiracy to do so. So here in the objective information sphere, while not conclusive, there are at least pretty strong signals that to believe the election was stolen to the degree to put your life on the line to assault the Capitol, uh, you know, seems uh, somewhat out of uh, out of phase with. The objective evidence. And so that leads one to believe that uh, the information sphere that is forming uh, the, the insurrectionist uh, network tribe, at least, uh, is somehow very significantly disjoint from these uh, objective signals or has means to downregulate these objective signals. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the, the, the disjoint information spheres uh, that we're developing these days and what the insurrectionist uh, sphere might look like. So in general, we're, we're just a big picture. The networks, the social network in particular is a, is a new decision-making system we're adding to our system. We have markets, we have bureaucracy, et cetera. This new decision-making system has two elements in it. There's a consensus and there's a dissent. Um, the consensus is that it can mobilize vast numbers of people to do something all at once. And the dissent is constantly there trying to find any flaw in the argument. We saw that at work with the COVID, you know, the same kind of thing that went on with the election is going on with COVID is that calling into question everything, right? And if the consensus can't get something done in time, the, the dissent will chew it up. Um, and then we have this tribalization dynamic, which then takes the dissent and um, it magnifies it because if you don't have this kind of uh, fictive kinship between people. Uh, you don't trust any of the information they provide you. Every bit of information they provide you is considered you know, a lie, something to do you harm. And so when anyone in the courts and anyone in the mainstream media said, the elections are great, don't worry, whatever people immediately said, you know, that's not something I can trust. What they did trust is, you know, the dissent basically saying, somebody saying, oh, um, here's a statistical analysis of the returns and it shows this anomaly. And, or a, here's a flaw in the system that they don't check signatures on these mail-in ballots. And therefore, you know, this stuff is invalid. And so that, those little bits of dissent were enough for people to you know, do the pattern matching and say this is a overarching conspiracy and that would overwhelm any sense of, of, you know, any calming influence or any kind of uh, uh, sense that there is some kind of objective reality out there. Um, and, you know, when, when you have elections as tight, you know, it doesn't take a, you know, a vast conspiracy. It just takes a little bit of, you know, a little bit of, of, of crud in the system to, you know, flip states. So, um, yeah, it's just, you know you got the tribalization dynamic, you got the dissent dynamic, and that all comes together in in, in creating this 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 distrust uh, of of what the mainstream would consider a consensus reality. 
Yeah, then I've pointed out before that uh, to get this thing to really cohere quickly, uh, it requires a strong rebroadcaster who rebroadcasts some subset of the message out to the tribe who then processes it, analyzes it, and then brings it back for rebroadcast. And the rebroadcaster in chief, you know, since 2015 has been Trump. Uh, you know, so, you know, his adamant uh, claim that the election was stolen, not only was it stolen, but it was a land, the election was a landslide, right? right. And, uh, really hard to find any objective evidence for that, but he just repeats it endlessly and with great vehemence. I, you know, I went through the speech he gave at the ellipse on the 6th and, uh, you know, he just rattled off dozens of these uh examples and, you know, claims, et cetera, uh, most of which have no support. But Lindsey Graham on the floor of the uh, of the House on in the you know, late evening of the 6th said, you know, they said 60,000 people uh, underage voted in Georgia. Uh, where are 10 of them? Where are one of them? Right. You know, the, there's no evidence for any for a lot. of There is evidence for some of it, like the changes of the rules about signature verification. But most of the claims in his list are just no evidential support uh, of any significance, not enough to get a single judge to even be willing to hold a hearing. Right. And so one one wonders, you know, is Trump Goebbels or is he insane? You know, is he just a conscious practitioner of the theory of the big lie, which is he knows this is mostly wrong, but if he repeats it endlessly, and there's, you know, it's, I would strongly advise people to read or listen to uh, that speech uh, he gave. I'll, we'll put the link to the uh, to the written version of his speech on the episode page for this episode. Uh, the guy is uh, just relentlessly repeating all of these charges, and uh, you know, is it because he he believes like Goebbels that if you tell a lie emphatically enough enough times, people will believe it, or is he basically insane? Does he actually believe it himself? I think that's actually a kind of interesting and important uh, uh, distinction to uh, uh, to dig into. Well, I mean, how do you okay? Like, how do you sell swampland in Florida to pensioners in New York? Exactly. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta believe it. You gotta believe it's great. I mean, you have to repeat it. Well, no, not we. What, well, there's two. There's two kinds of con men, right? There's the ones who believe it, uh, and then there's those who are just cynical sociopaths, and they're clear. I mean, I know I was a salesman for quite a while. In yeah. Early days of my career, I know a bunch of salespeople. I've hired a bunch of salespeople, and there are clearly two kinds of salespeople. Uh, the those who are the true believers and those who are sociopaths and will just say anything to get the deal done. And uh, uh, Trump could be either. I'm not sure. Yeah, you can convince yourself to be a kind of a true believer in order to make it easier for you to make the sale. So it's like, and then, you know, it, it, I mean, Trump's nature or Trump's role in this election and Trump's role as a president was as a disrupt, disruptor in chief. He, he, you know, he took every bit of dissent in the system and, and, and ran with it. Um, and he changed it. It was like fast transients moving from one thread of dissent to the next, to the next, to the next, constantly causing disruption. And um, that's why he continually got the support he did. Yeah, that's where uh, Jeb Bush, of all people, uh, was so prescient when he, uh, you know, uh, tried to point out, said it again and again, that Trump is basically the chaos candidate. And uh, that was what Trump did, right? Uh, he'd say A on Monday, B on Tuesday, C on Wednesday, all about the same issue. Then he'd be back to A again on Thursday. It was like there was no coherence at all in his uh, model of reality. It was just whatever came out of his mouth. And uh, a very interesting and in some sense, a very disturbing way to, uh, uh, for the president of the United States to act. But at some level, it was efficient. You know, he got uh, 75 million votes. Ah! <laughs> yeah, but his support throughout the entire four years is 42%, at least according to the way they were polling. And it barely wavered. It barely wavered because every single day he fulfilled the plausible promise of the you know, political insurgency that put him into office that he disrupted. He kept that system that his supporters saw as you know, uh, an existential risk to them, that, that, that was closing them down or hurting them or doing them damage. And, and he kept that going. And he, and he did it through those fast transients, that kind of mobile warfare, of, you know, online warfare, where you're going from you know, one topic to the next, and it made it impossible for the mainstream media and others to defend against. Yeah, you get somebody to analyze uh, some statement that's obviously just crazy, uh, but by the time the proof package has been put forth that this statement is very, very 
uh, untrue. Uh, the, the spotlight has moved on to something else. So it's very rapid moving from topic to topic to topic. Uh, so that at least within the uh, you know the network self-organizing network tribe, the focus of attention is not looking back to say, did uh, is what Trump's saying true? Uh, because by the time someone could analyze whether it's true or false, he's moved on to some new line of argument. Right. You know uh, that's that goes back to my weaponized social networks report. It was one of my the second report I wrote for for my Patreon, and that uh, that method of warfare, that maneuver warfare online. It was very, very effective. They kept, I mean, basically what you do by changing topics all the time, they make it impossible for the opposition to have coherent thought is that they are constantly caught in a, in a kind of in between space. They can't, you know, complete a thought without moving on to the next one. And by the time they start to assemble the facts and start to try to make sense of things, you're on to the next one. So it, it creates this, this kind of chaotic mindset. Um, but he was elected for that, and that's that's what he delivered. Um, you know, I think the two political poles here is not this classic, you know, uh, socialist left, you know, what the government can control versus the kind of uh, Republican conservative right, you know, what government shouldn't control. It's uh, consensus and dissent. It's uh, one pole being kind of a Russia where everything goes, and the other pole being China where nothing goes. It's only my way or the highway, it's everybody in, in, in consensus alignment. And that if Jack Ma steps out of line, even a, even a little bit by, by criticizing the government or saying that they, they're not on the right path, uh, he disappears, right? So uh, so we have those political polls is that consensus and dissent. And that there's no specific policy positions associated with those two polls. It's, 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 it changes <laughs> over time. So... Um, it makes it hard for people to get their heads around this, but it's uh, it's different than the the old left and right. Yeah, that's for sure. I will, uh, you know, maybe push back a little bit on the idea that the biggest effect of, uh, say, Trumpian information warfare is to disorient the opposition. Uh, I'd say the opposition didn't get whipsawed nearly as much as uh, Trump's followers did. Uh, they're the ones that were able to be hypnotized and uh, essentially insulated from objective reality by these fast transients. Uh, I expect, I, you know, from what I can see, at least over time, Trump's opposition uh, were able to, um, you know, derive a signal about what Trump was and what he was about uh, that became more and more accurate uh, over time as they did, you know, implicit signal analysis on his use of chaotic transients. Uh, so it didn't work so much on the opposition as it did work on his own followers and allowed him to, uh, you know, pull them out of the reality-based world, essentially. Uh, you know, they got better at dissent, and we saw that with the COVID. Uh, more, more prone to dissent, to centralized efforts or centralized consensus. Um, yeah, it, I, I, I think there was, you know, kind of a, a mental training on both sides that, that occurred over time. Um, we'll see going forward. I, you know, the, the established mindset is, uh, pretty vapid at this point. There's really not much left to the kind of standard establishment. I mean, all the innovation seems to be occurring at the, at the polls, you know, at the, at the far left and the far right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Certainly, uh, you know, things like, uh, the woke movement, uh, uh, you know, is also, uh, of this sort. It's got its own, uh, bizarre, uh, information sphere, its own ideology, and it's you know this will have a, a guy on next week talking about it. Has formed itself up into essentially a, uh, a, a neo religion, uh, and uh, you know, has similar at attributes to the Trump self organizing tribe, and is you know, strongly in opposition uh, to the uh, center left status quo. You know, and the you know, awoke uh, thinks a liberal is about the worst thing around, uh, maybe even worse than a Trumpster. So it's. Uh, it's certainly not. This whole phenomenon is not just uh, a phenomenon of uh, uh, Trumpism, as you say. It's both the, the left and the right uh, self-organizing using uh, uh, distorted info spheres uh, and uh, quasi-religious ideologies uh, to segregate, uh, to separate themselves from a consensus view of reality. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny that there, there is a little bit of a parallel there. I mean, the, the original Antifa. Uh, you know, it was it was formed after the uh, the previous organization that defended all the left organizations in Germany in 1929 had been disbanded 
made illegal because of a, a very violent protest. And uh, when the NFI formed, it was just uh, focused on protecting the communists. And they did most of their fighting against the rest of the uh, center left, uh, trying to force them into a, you know, alignment with their ideology rather than focusing on the on the right. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's an interesting little parallel there. That the, yeah. And I think, you know, you know, I expect the, uh, uh, the you know, more action will swing back to the. Uh, uh, far left here soon when they become very disillusioned by the, uh, you know, sort of mild center leftism of, uh, of Biden and, uh, you know, the, the realities of what a, uh, very narrow rep- uh, democratic majority can actually achieve in the house and the Senate. So, uh, you know, the, 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 this cycle of self-organizing network tribes and their development of meme plexes, like, uh, the neo religion of woke, uh, uh, is, is, is a thing we're going to continue to see. I suspect we'll probably see something at least analogous to the neo-religion, uh, on the right. Be interesting to, uh, see what that is, the, you know, the lost cause or we almost did it or something like that. If you try to boil down what this is all about, I mean, why is everybody fighting the way they are, you know, they are and what are they fighting over? And, um, in, in my thinking, it, it's, it's, you know, fighting for control of this network decision-making system. And the way you control this network decision-making system is you control the companies that run it, and you know, and you also control uh, the direction of the development of the AIs and everything else that will you know provide the underlying architecture. Um, kind of that 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 uh, those algorithms and those AIs that sit between us that mitigate our interactions that that point us in certain directions, and um, you know, we're not explicit. There's not really doesn't seem to be like an explicit acknowledgement that we're fighting over it yet. But, uh, you know, if you look out long term, that's the thing that will define uh, how we operate as a society is is how this new network decision making system is actually uh, constituted, how it is articulated, how it is you know, turned into a, a social artifact. And, uh, it, you know, people would, you know, a lot of people would like to reject it and say it doesn't, it's not going to exist. But frankly, you know, with everything, all these services and everything else going online, uh, you know, everything from your communications to your dating, to your job searching, to your, uh, your small business operation, to you know, marketing and flow for that small business, everything's on the, in this network space and uh, how that actually uh, operates underneath the covers and it, it's biases and it's, direction is going to determine whether or not we're a free society that's dynamic or we are a lockdown authoritarian society that's so scared of, of any kind of dissent that we prevent it, that it's built in that every conversation that goes towards something that's not pre-approved is squashed. And of course, there's, you know, two other polls, there's at least one other poll there. One, there's one that, uh, you know, is China, any dissent will be squashed instantly. But the other is you know, say Trumpian squared, where everything is chaos and there's no coherence and there's no objective reality. Uh, that's That might even be worse. You know, it's the old argument, uh, what's worse, totalitarianism or anarchy? And, uh, you know, the, we, we have a really interesting challenge here as a society to tune this new emergent uh, social operating system that's operating on these networks. I wouldn't call it necessarily a full social operating system, but at least a social signaling system operating on these networks uh, you know, to provide an interesting balance uh, where there's real p- uh, opportunity for real pluralism, uh, including real dissent. And yet there's also as much as we can produce a common ground of objective reality. Uh, that would seem to be the the tuning that we want, but it's not clear that either side wants that. You know, uh, one side wants chaos and the other side wants uh top-down uh, tyranny, essentially, uh, at least the, the two far poles. Yeah. Uh, so uh, perhaps the, the center can rise up and say no to both of them. You know, optimally, we have a system that, that, that balances consensus formation and dissent. Because, I mean, you, you can, what we see in this network system, it's easy to form a consensus on something, and it can be overwhelming, right? You can, it can reach every nook and cranny, and, and it can mobilize things very, very quickly. But... Um, you also have to have a dissent function to keep it in check, keep that consensus in check. And, it, and if you start to lock down all of these sources of dissent because they're inconvenient or whatever, uh, you'll have consensuses that run forever, even even long after they should have been 
destroyed or, you know, it, 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 you need both in balance. And that the other thing is that we need a society that ah, is more opt-in on what consensus reality is. So, so much of what we do right now is like, this is consensus reality. Boom. We're telling you, the establishment tells you, right? Uh, there were, you know, WMDs and there, there were also nobody, nobody to blame for the financial crisis. So nobody goes to jail, which I mean, it, you know, that kind of stuff is when it's told to you, you know, it's wrong. Right. So you're like, you're, you're, it creates this kind of vertigo. Uh, what we need is something that, you know, that, uh, it kind of incentivizes you to opt in that, uh, that, uh, you know, it, it makes it, makes it worth your while to participate in. And if we can do that, then we can do really amazing things um, rather than being told these things that often, you know, devolve into, you know, stuff that's just convenient for somebody who, whoever is, is running the establishment. Yeah. Or not just convenient, profitable, you know, again, uh, you know, that, you know, always look at the money on money return, that inner loop that really drives our society who benefits, right? Uh, and I, I always point people to the one philosophy book that I keep in my working office, which is Karl Popper's The Open Society and Its Enemies. And he makes a very deep argument. However, the long term, this kind of balance between coherence and dissent uh, allows an open society to defeat both alternatives, anarchy on one side and tyranny on the other. Uh, but, but our tuning doesn't seem right at the moment. You know, for instance, uh, this, uh, this sudden uh, snap to squash parlor uh, disturbs me a lot. You know, I will put my cards on the table. Uh, I am no fan of the people organizing on parlor. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I am very disturbed by the, uh, you know, three technological, tech, big, huge transnational companies, all of whom are controlled by one or two uh, somewhat un- strange individuals uh, having the power to squash uh, one of the um, uh, one of the relatively important players in this information system. That is not good at all. Right. Yeah, it's, um, that's the what I could describe as a, the long night option is that these these big companies in the establishment decide that they don't want any dissent, anything that's dangerous out there, and that they lock everything down and they build their AIs and they extend their services only to people who are in this consensus zone, as they define the consensus. And um, that's bad for all of us. That's I think that's a civilization killer. It's just this idea that we have this you know, single orthodoxy, a single way of looking at the world, and that anybody who questions it is wrong. Is is it's not only wrong; they're disconnected. You know, they're 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 uh, from all of the services because I mean uh, that we rely on you know just to get through the day nowadays um, and. You know, what happens is that once the big guys go and once the big guys disconnect you, everybody else seems to follow. It's a disconnection cascade. You know, it's like it's not just what happened to Parler. It wasn't just the big guys that did their lawyers left. You know, know, all the other services and everything else that they rely on all disappear. So um, in the short term, this is truly problematic. But fortunately, uh, so long as we don't have a true police state. Uh, technologically, there's the ability to route around, right? Uh, why did the parlor, well, they were able to be choked because they were on AWS and because they used uh, apps, right? If you don't use apps and you're not on AWS, uh, there's a lot less choke points. Now, there's some other choke points like domain names systems, uh, but again, you can even route around that. It's a, a hilarious. And, uh, uh, you know, ISPs, there's uh, hosting companies in the Ukraine, and, you know, there's uh, lots of ways to gradually route around there. You can even route around the internet itself through uh, a, uh, a grid-based uh, Wi-Fi system. And, uh, you know, Peter Wang talks about that from time to time. Uh, and uh, so, uh, in fact, I know already people are working on this thing. I said, somebody who's pretty deep in the right-wing space reach out to me uh, yesterday. Uh, and I uh, talked to him three years ago, watch for this coming, uh, that they're going to try to choke all the choke points on the internet. Right. And really, uh, the right should be building alternative infrastructure. Not because I'm a fan of the right, but because I'm a fan of balanced conversation. And uh, he wrote, this is a 
this is a pretty central dude. And he said, you are goddamn, you are prescient, right? Uh, have you done anything about it? And I go, no, I talked to some folks, but they weren't very competent uh, to execute. But, uh, you know, you, you guys better be going on. Hopefully somebody on your side's working on this because, uh, unfortunately, one of the tools that's being uh, used right now is these technological choke points to attempt to uh, stifle your side of the discussion. And, you know, I don't necessarily agree with your side of the discussion, but I do believe you have the right to uh, actively present that side of the discussion uh, into the uh, into the public square, and that this is very disturbing to me that uh, a tiny number of uh, uh, blue church, big companies controlled by idiosyncratic individuals have the ability to uh, essentially stifle discussion. Uh, very bad. Well, I, this alternative infrastructure, I mean, it's great, and I've been in and out of that space for, what, a decade or so, <laughs> you know, participating, looking at it. Uh, it's just the vast bulk of services, I mean, so much is like in this mainstream space, you know, going off into the little corners and talking is, is not, not really a, a great alternative to this. I and mean, when we've lost a war and everything else. Uh, It'd be interesting to see, because what will happen is raids will happen, right? People will self-organize over in the disconnected nets and then they'll come back and propagandize and you know organize subtle war with just barely within the rules of the terms of service of the other platforms, and you know whisper to people this is where we're organizing. It's it's, it's not going to be quite as, the, the attempt to suppress dissent, at least in the United States, uh, is going to be very difficult. Uh, I, I will predict. Yeah. If well, the thing is, it becomes really really difficult if they start IDing you as an individual, and if you show up. Doing that, you lose all access to all services, and and when that when you the service disconnect is, is is fatal to your job, fatal to your your ability to communicate, fatal to your ability to get on any of these services, transact, run a small business, anything else. I mean, it's just uh, the penalties are too great to even think about. It's an open air prison, effectively. Uh, you know, yeah. you can go off and do this stuff, but if, if you do something that that we can identify as you that violates any any of the rules like if you are anti-vax or you're anti-round world you know what i mean it's like you're gone you're disconnected from the world very scary if that happens then at that point i will go into the streets god damn it uh, uh that is worth fighting for because that's not uh tolerable and that is the you know the slippery slope to soft uh, maybe not so soft in the longer term tyranny it's it's already happening to to a lot of people. I mean, you know, in, a, in in bits and pieces. But I mean, there are people being disconnected right now. I mean, and uh, losing their livelihood, and, and you know, constant streams of, of, of attacks on them and their families and everything else. Yeah, it's it's happening. It's not universal yet, but give it time. Well, John, I think we're going to wrap it up there. I've got another uh, call here to get on to. This has been, as always, remarkably uh, interesting. Check John out at, on his Patreon. And w- what's the name of it again? Global Gorillas. Yeah, yeah. Very w- much worth reading. Thanks a lot, John. Hey, thanks, Jim. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.